if you have an artist heterosexualized, like Picasso, so then you can talk as much as you want about his female lovers, his muses, etc. However, if you want to bring up for discussion or to talk about the sexuality of a queer artist, the response is, has been up to present times. Oh, no, 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 that's irrelevant. And um, the reason being in many cases, because the, the museum boards are very conservative and they are afraid to either create controversy or to lose funding. But the outcome of this is that the curators of the museums, of the exhibitions, they avoid any uh, same-sex relationships in their exhibitions. And in doing so, what they're doing is they closet queer figures that should be admired. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited because this is the first gay and lesbian review uh, collaboration with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So a lot of cross-promoting happening here. Um, today, for the first gay and lesbian review Ivory Tower Boiler Room discussion, I have on a gay and lesbian review um, regular contributor, um, Ignacio Darnad. So first, hi, Ignacio. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Very, Very excited good. to be here today. Yes, it's wonderful. I'm so excited. So first, just for the listeners to know, you've been in the film business for over two decades. You left your position as head of international marketing for Disney and for Sony to develop what we're really here to dig into, which is this documentary series called Hiding in Plain Sight, Breaking the Queer Code in Art. And you started to really give so many lectures and we'll talk about a YouTube channel that you launched that really lays out this vision. So um, yeah, welcome. Thank um, you. And I think my first question is when I see in your resume that you are head of international marketing, that just boggles my mind, like the responsibilities that a job like that would carry. So are you allowed to reveal a little of what you were Yeah, doing? absolutely. I mean, I actually am originally from Spain. I came here many years ago to go to USC Film School. And after that, I've been in the film business for over two decades. I was, as you said, head of international marketing for Disney first, and then for Sony Pictures. And my responsibility was to create all the campaigns, the posters, the trailers, the TV spots for all the movies that the studio released from Spider-Man, Pirates of the Caribbean, the animated movies, etc. So that was, you know, it was a huge job. Yes. Yeah. And well, so compared Los Angeles compared to Spain, do you have a favorite of, you know, the dynamic, especially, I guess it depends where in Spain you're from. True. I'm from the South, from Seville. So which is weather-wise is similar. So that in a way is okay. But the lifestyle is so different. Uh, in LA, it's such a different culture. It, it's just literally, it couldn't be more different. But now that I've been here for so long, I feel that I'm more, I've actually been longer in LA than in Spain now, which is kind of uh, hard to have. Yeah. So how long have you been in the LA area? For uh, over 30 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I came very young. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, so as you were doing this work for Disney and for Sony, were you always in the background thinking of, oh, okay, I really need to dig into my love of queer art? Or like, where did the queer art fascination come from? That's a great way to start talking about the project because film was my original passion. That's what brought me here. That's what made me uproot myself from uh, Spain. But art was always part of my DNA. I loved art. I went to exhibitions all over the world, but then like a decade ago, something happened. And all of a sudden art became first like a driving passion and it ultimately became like a life mission. Um, it just happened. It's, it's just, you know, how these things in life uh, transform you. And I think it all started when I was traveling around the world and uh, going to exhibitions. And I realized that many of the artists that I love happen to be gay. And, but I'm not talking about the, the usual suspects, the, you know, David Hockney or Keith Haring, but many artists that I responded to, but I didn't realize that they were gay until much later on. So this really, really got my interest uh, peaked. And I said, you know what, let me research this. Why am I responding to them? And then I found out that throughout history, from Michelangelo all the way to present time, queer artists used secret gay codes in their work hmm. and that there is gay imagery hanging in plain sight in works of art which are iconic and known the world over. And to me, when I found that was such a revelation, it was a revolution in my mind. It was like a lightning strike uh, struck me. And to the point that I left my job at Sony Pictures at the time, I was the executive vice president of international marketing to pursue this project, which I call Breaking the Gay Code in Art, which um, you kind of alluded to it already, that encompasses the different projects, the articles that I write for the Gay and Lesbian Review, the lectures that I'm now giving on this topic, which is basically revealing the crucial importance of queer artists throughout history. And I'm giving these lectures in colleges, in LGBTQ centers and via Zoom around the world. The YouTube channel that you also mentioned called Breaking the Gay Code in Art, that where you can see for free all these lectures. And the Instagram page that I just started and ultimately, with what I hope it will become the documentary series, Hiding in Plain Sight, Breaking the Queer Code in Art. Yeah, well, it's so exciting, everything that you're talking about and this mission of, like, we'll get into it. Ignacio has this really intriguing phrase of, you have this analogy of the don't ask, don't tell military policy and kind of using that as a lens of understanding these secret codes in queer art. And like, we'll get into why you call it don't ask, like why you're thinking of don't ask, don't tell in this context. But I think before that even, I love that you created an Instagram page, Breaking the Gay Code in Art. Um, And Ignacio had confided in me about like whether there would be an audience. And I can just see how many people are absorbing this and like how fast it's already growing because the visual is so stimulating on Instagram, right? Like that's why people go to Instagram to see like visuals that pop out. And I think, you know, is there one piece that you've put up on Instagram that you have like one of the paintings or art 
pieces that really speak to you think your mission or you know yeah. it's interesting because the instagram as you say is a perfect medium for for this project for breaking the game for art because it's all about art about this uh visual images and um so when i started which was a month ago my goal is to post three or four images a week and what i do is when you click on on them so i give you the story behind them i decode and I find that fascinating. And I think people's eyes really open and they, they look at art in different ways. You know, for instance, um, I mean, there's so many examples. I, I talked, the latest post from this week is uh, um, about a, an image that Andy Warhol did of Superman, you know? So, you know, you think, oh, great. Uh, Andy Warhol created this image uh, because it's a powerful, heterosexual icon. Yeah. No, it, it was because Superman was a sexual turn-on for Warhol during his childhood. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, yes, so yes. all of a sudden, every piece of work gets a completely different meaning when you really realize uh, what's behind it. Um, one of the visuals that really surprised people, there's a, a lesbian artist called Gluck that is not that famous. There's a very, uh, a very uh, important portrait that she did of herself and, and with her lover. But before she was able to be open about her relationship with the, another woman who was a florist, instead of painting her lover, because she couldn't do that openly, she painted the flowers hmm. that her lover uh, favored. You know, so all of these coded messages that uh, is, to me is so moving to see the length that these artists had to go to to express their desires because society didn't allow them at the time. And how in doing so, they transform mainstream culture, which to me is a very important piece of information. Yeah, well, and I, you know, am browsing now some of the images you've put and I really especially love, um, you know, Donatello's David. So yeah. you go, you know, Ignacio goes into the whole like you say, decoding it. I love that use of the verb to decode and um, decode what's queer and exactly. you know, what's gay in this. And, you know, with terminology, because I know when I was listening to your lectures and like Ignacio said, they're all free on his YouTube channel, um, Breaking the Gay Code in Art, that um, you really lay out the importance of your terminology. So like- yes. You know, what to you is the main difference between saying breaking the gay code or breaking the queer code? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I've gone to both uh, terms and there is a section of the community that doesn't like the word queer because it has a negative connotation. But really, in the last few years, it has become kind of a rallying cry to, to, to get the community together. And it has a different community of um, empowerment, pride. And that's why I am using more and more the term uh, queer. And also because gay in some cases is limiting or maybe inaccurate. Let me give you an example. Um, the term homosexual, the word homosexual was not, for lack of better words, invented until the, the, uh, the 19th century, the late 19th century. So, can you call Michelangelo and Donatello gay or homosexuals? You know what I'm saying? So that's a tricky thing that can cause a whole kind of conversation. 
But queer is a bigger umbrella. It's those artists that went against the grain. And you know what I'm saying? So it's a, a more comfortable term to apply to, particularly when you're talking about people pre the invention of homosexuality. So. Yeah, and there's so many valences of understanding this same-sex desire or, you know, in my own work, I really go for the term homoerotic because I just yes. think for literature, art, media, any kind of media, there's so much to understand with homoerotic desire. And I think, you know, why we understand each other's work so well is because we're both so interested in that unspoken or exactly what does the desire mean and i think you know yes this conversation might get um you know graphic but i mean i think that the work you're doing is so interesting because it is not that you're not going to the sexually explicit, but in a way you're not like you're decoding. So it's kind of different. Like I sometimes think, have you ever thought about, okay, what would happen if I was looking at say, you know, gay porn images or trying to decode um, like more highly sexual images? Well, like, do you, yeah. Like let's say Tom of Kingland, but that, that, that uh, to me, that's not part of my work. Mm -hmm. because that's overtly sexual, you know? And so there's nothing to decode. It's right there and there, you know? The penises are there and the sex is there. So I talk about those instances in which the sexuality is referred, implied, uh, or even in many cases is hiding in plain sight, you know? And uh, when, you, when you see the lectures and when you are made aware of it, I've seen people gasp and say, how come I never noticed this before? And now you cannot unsee it. And now you look at art differently mm -hmm. because all of a sudden you understand what's behind it and, and the longing from the artist and how he manifested it. Yeah, well, and I love that you use Tom of Finland as like the more- um, Whom I love. But, yes, uh, yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Like we love these artists. And, but like you said, it's more overt and there's something so exciting when you're giving lectures and like the whole audience knows this work. Exactly. Like even say Donatello, I mean, yes, it is a new David, but um, you know, that there's other elements to think about with the culture of like boy male love and Exactly. ancient Rome. Well, no, no, not in ancient Rome, in Great. Italian society of the Renaissance. But I guess we could go all the way back to yeah. ancient Rome and then into ancient Greece, which I know you do, which I love because I do agree with you that to understand the invention of homosexuality oh, from really? the late Victorian period, they all turned to ancient Greek models. So like they were looking to art to understand same-sex desire. Like, yeah, completely. They were, yeah, they were looking at sculptures and, you know, they were looking at uh, banquet scenes. So with young- And not only that, if, yeah. if, you, if you really get into it, like I have in, I've been researching this for over a decade, you realize that, for instance, the Greeks invented Greek gods, mm -hmm. such as Ganymede, to justify the desire of an older man for a younger man. This is the origin of the Greek gods, you know, is to express what 
humans couldn't do it because it was maybe a little bit too risque, but because they were cushioned by the fact that they're in a fantasy world, all of a sudden they were accepted and it allowed them to express those desires. So it's fascinating. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is so happy to welcome Broadview Press as our official sponsor. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, They always publish with an eye towards diversity, so there is a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and other authors from marginalized groups. In the summer of 2022, they launched their new Broadview Anthology of American Literature, which increases diversity in the classroom because it rethinks the American canon and breathes new life into the American Literary Survey. It's actually been called, quote, the new gold standard in the field. I love using Broadview Press text in my own classroom at Stony Brook University. I can't wait to use the new anthology of American literature when I have the opportunity. And for all of you out there, Broadview Press has given us the official code, Ivory Tower, for 20% off site-wide on broadviewpress.com. Again, that is code Ivory Tower for 20% off. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and it's so, there's so much context to the work you do, Ignacio, because not only are you shocking the audience of a well-known image that they didn't understand had queer coding to it, but you also have to give a historiography of, like, where the work came from, like, why is it important Donatello's in the Renaissance? Like, who was Donatello? Um, The reception of who he was studying, and I'm sure we have antiquity to thank for his work. Um, So yeah, like with Tama Finland, it would be, yes, he has his, who he inherited his image and work from, um, but a very different, um, more uh, like the eroticism discussion would be very different, right? Like Like uh, going on uh, Tama Finland, um, he was a huge fan of Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, in fact, he has a, a great cheeky drawing in which the Michelangelo's David comes to life. Uh, but when you see his drawings in person, which I've seen many times, because I've seen, I, this may be like a little bit like problematic to say, but his drawings are as good as Michelangelo's. That's how good they are. The texture, the, the way he does everything, but because of the subject matter, he's relegated to this kind of niche of uh, not necessarily considered a serious artist. This is changing. Uh, like the price of his work is really increasing. So, but 
that's a different subject of how the overtly gay artists, the art world, while the art world, for instance, can see in a heterosexual uh, sexual image, they could interpret that as, let's say, a metaphor for war, peace, virtue, etc., which you know from art history. If it's a gay uh, sex image, is immediately considered uh, erotic pornographic, and there is no leeway to be seen as anything but um, unlike the equivalent of a heterosexual uh, art. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess to take from one of your gay and lesbian review articles, um, the one that I'm not going to say, I don't try to play favorites, but it definitely is the one that speaks to me the most just because of my work with Whitman and bathers and that yes. nude, the nudity with homoeroticism, exactly. how, yeah, how desire functions. So Ignacio has this article, Artists Bathing the Gay Away. Again, another pun, kind of yes. like the don't ask, to, don't tell you have yes. bathing instead of praying the gay away, ah. like that wordplay. Um, and you actually do start off with Michelangelo as an analysis. Um, Right, the battle of Kashina. Yeah. So the battle of Kashina, do you want to give a little context for those? Yeah, so Michelangelo did this draw. He was commissioned uh, to do a drawing while uh, Leonardo was doing another drawing for the same building. It was going to be in a public building. The the project never came to be for different because there was, this is in Florida. Uh, because there was a political regime change and all of a sudden these images wouldn't have the same resonance. But that's not the point. The point is that this drawing, you know, it was supposed to be about a heroic battle scene. I mean, the title, the battle of Kashina. And what does he do? Instead, he does a drawing of these soldiers bathing naked in the river um, when they were caught unaware that the enemies uh, were coming to be from Pisa. So why did he do that? Very simple, because that was his way to express homoeroticism, the naked body, the male body, the muscles, which is what he was interested in. And this drawing became so iconic that there was, there's a lot of histories of what happened to it. Uh, there's a, a story that one of his rivals, another queer artist, um, cut it in pieces and, and it, it gave it to different students. But they, they, the fact is that this a drawing by Michelangelo is so important that has been used as an alibi for centuries by queer artists, meaning, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing an image of bathers like Michelangelo. You know what I'm saying? So the fact that Michelangelo did it legitimizes this alibi that you can portray naked male bathers when the reality is that you do it because you wanna show your homoerotic desires in in your work. Yeah, well, and I think it's so fascinating when you get into your um, decoding and like why I think this work, I can't wait for this trajectory of the work you're doing, Ignacio, because we we see this so much throughout society, but we can point to examples now of especially like even um, Americans love of like masculinity in sports and like how the uniform fits the body or even bodybuilder culture. It's very apparent of 
like men competing against other men, looking at their bodies, yeah. comparing the muscles with each other. And, but to see that, um, the way that they're viewing masculinity also has this other side of how homoerotic this is, but also when a queer artist takes hold of say American football, they're going to do something completely different with just, you know, using that accepted image of masculinity and turning it on its head to express homoeroticism. Exactly. And let it just flow and fluctuate. Yeah. I love that because, um, in, in, if you see one of my lectures uh, in which I talk about the uh, queer images hanging in plain sight, I talk about how many queer artists, what they did is exactly what you said, which is they appropriated socially accepted images such as of icons, such as soldiers, sailors, bathers, athletes, wrestlers. You know, those are images that everybody accepts and they portray them with a patina of homoeroticism, but because, you know, they're socially accepted images, they managed to get away with it, you know? And that's being used from the 16th century until today. And for instance, the, um, there's a very famous illustrator after Norman Rockwell is probably the most important that he was gay, J.C. Leinbecker. And uh, that's what he did, you know what I'm saying? His images was all about masculinity, like polo shirts. Uh, but it was always a sexual tension between these men in closed spaces. And, but because they represent the American value system and the sportsmen, et cetera, nobody questions them. Yeah. But now a century later, we see them and it's like, hello. I mean, this is the most homoerotic thing I've ever seen. And same thing with patriotism. If uh, in one of my, in this talk, I, um, about the hiding in plain sight, I mentioned how during the war, some of the ads were so homoerotic that it's just shocking that you see them today, you have to laugh, you know? So yeah. it's, it's just funny. Wait, and who is that artist again, Ignacio? Uh, the illustrator I just mentioned? The illustrator. Yeah, J.C. Yeah. Leinbecker. Okay, okay. Yeah. And I, for everyone who's listening, what I'm going to do for this episode is on Ivory Tower Boiler Room's Instagram. Um, I'm going to put all the... Um, paintings that Ignacio is discussing that way Perfect. you know I think for a discussion like this we all need yeah. to look at the visuals um so yeah head over for that but you know okay so we've talked about Michelangelo and I think that you know before we get to someone who I think you just really dig into deeply is Thomas Eakins yeah. and um the swimming hole um Wait, it's the swimming hole, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is the painting. Okay, titles. okay. It, yes, it has yes, different yes. titles, but the swimming hole is the most commonly accepted. Yeah, I was just thinking when I, you know, usually I refer to it in my uh, writing with uh, Walt Whitman and Eakins' fascination with Whitman yeah. and the Leaves of Grass 28 Bathers Song yes. of Myself section. Exactly. But, um, you know, and we'll talk. I really can't wait to hear your opinion about what he did with actual live models. But like to get into thinking about how a lot of these artists relied on male models, right? For who they were going to, who they were um, thinking about, actual bodies they wanted to see in person. Like in your work, did most of these queer male artists um, and female artists, which I think would be a different story, but 
because of yeah how they're accepted in certain art institutions but did they rely on mostly live models for their paintings or were they did they not need models it, it all depends um so to answer your question one thing that from the renaissance this idea of the academic uh drawings of models as a way to improve your technique etc became all the way to really present time. This is something that they used to do. And um, those were with live models. And in those classes, because they were nude models, female students were not accepted. That's why there were really not so many uh, female artists at the time. And what is interesting is, and I, I'm gonna be posting on Instagram very soon, in fact, uh, this week, how many queer artists they, uh, use these academic studies to express their homoeroticism. Yes, there were a study of a male nude, great, fantastic. But when you see them, they are so sexually charged that they're like the most gorgeous thing. Sometimes they have two men interacting and it's like, oh, no, but it's an academic study. You know what I'm saying? So, um, which is, it gives them the patina of, of respect. You know, so that was another alibi used by the artist. And other artists like Eakins uh, did use uh, live uh, models. In fact, his students, in fact, he took uh, pictures of himself, Eakins. He is, I believe it was his partner, Samuel Murray, naked, beautiful photos, and his students, which caused a big controversy. He was a very controversial figure. And when this painting that you mentioned, the swimming hall, which is one of the most beloved American paintings that was commissioned by somebody. So what Eakins did is he basically loaded it with codes to give it a sense of respect because what he was doing is showing his young students naked on top of a rock. But, you know, so what one of them is posing like Donatello's David. Hmm. So that, gives it a classical feel to it. Another one is painting like a very famous um, Roman sculpture. You know what I'm saying? So this is all giving a sense of respectability to make the nudes more acceptable. But when you start decoding the painting, you see that Ethings has painted himself swimming towards these young naked men. And to, if you get even deeper, you realize that this painting is really a visual expression of a Walt Whitman poem about love for young men. So this painting has so many layers of codes, which if you see it unaware, you say, oh, it's a great painting. But all of a sudden when you analyze it, it has a completely different meaning and you realize how powerful it is. And it's interesting because Eakins, he tried to make it palatable, but when the, the young, I'm sorry, the rich man who commissioned it received it, he was shocked and he rejected it. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 please give me something that I can uh, donate to a museum later on, you know? So in spite of all his attempts to hide the homorality system in the swimming hole, he, it's all there, you know? Yeah. Well, and I love that you, right, start from the literary yes. to the painting. Well, the literary to Eakins's young nude models um, to the painting. And all these layers are fascinating because it really talks about what you get to in all of your articles 
but also in your lectures, all the work you're doing, Ignacio, which is this type of queer fantasy. And you kind of have answered one of my questions, which is like, if you were actually analyzing film, how different of a project would this be? But I feel like it would be different because say like someone put Eakins' swimming hole, like filmed young men nude running around and frolicking. Like this sounds like the star of, you know, some porn film. Of exactly. The current in the, history, in, the, in the early history of film, their homosexuality, it was all coded. Um, my partner has a blog on the history of, of uh, classic movies. And when you, when you see some scenes, for instance, North by Northwest, uh, the Hitchcock, the Martin Landau character is gay, but it's coded. But when you say, wait, what was that? You know, they couldn't show it over there, but it's there. And in the Fred Astaire, Ranger Rogers movies, there's always this gay friend who is the flaming queen. You know what I'm saying? And it's, on, it's addressed as she sometimes. It's crazy, but it's coded. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it, it cannot be said uh, overtly either. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Hitchcock has so many of those yes. coded films, like Strangers on a Train. And oh my God. The two men, like- The tension between them, you know? Yes, the it's, sexual it's, tension, the yeah. touch that yes. goes on. Well, yeah. yeah, but that's for others out there. Yes, I know they're awesome. doing that. They're doing that work and- um, but I think to get into another aspect, I'm just going to use an anecdote, which is recently, I've just been so fascinated with, um, these podcasts on Playgirls history, just because it was this big feminist, like awakening of, okay, here is nude men instead of nude women. Yeah. And, but you know, the demographic that ended up being the ones who were actually buying the majority of the magazines weren't straight women. They were actually men interested in men, which, you know, it's a fascinating though um, history. But the reason I just bring that up is because, you know, who do you think, and this is probably, there's not going to be one answer, but it's why I want love to ask it, which is, you know, you've talked about the audience mm-hmm. being surprised about these queer coding and works of art they know, but who do you think most of these artists who you are um, bringing to light, um, their intended audience? Do you think their intended audience is the audience that actually really values that work or are the ones who actually know the codes that they're putting out in the ether for us all? And now, a message from the Gay and Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemrick, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GNLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles, and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, 
and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the women he called his swans. Now for the special offer. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit georeview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code I-T-B-R for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine. That is hard to, to give you one answer because each artist had its own uh, rationale. For instance, there, one of the ways to cope with the repression uh, from society is some gay artists had what I call double lives. So they had mainstream work, which they showed, museums, whatever. And then they had their queer work, which they only circulated uh, among an intimate circle of friends. And this is a very common with, for instance, the photographer George Black Lines, who, you know, he was a fashion photographer for Vogue and uh, magazines like that. But at the same time, he was doing these revolutionary photos of male nudes that he couldn't show during his lifetime, but he circulated with uh, a circle of friends and they ended up in the Kinsey Institute. And now, seven uh, decades later, they are really, really considered like, uh, revolutionary, you know? So it really depends on which artists you talk about to, to figure out how that works uh, uh, into their work, how they do it and for whom they do it, you know? Like each has its own um, yes. key. Um, exactly. Understanding like a treasure map. Like you have to kind of yes, it is. It is. decode the puzzle for exactly. each of these artists. I it get is. that, yeah. It is, it is. And like to follow up with that, I know I had hinted at you have this whole under um, discussion of don't ask, don't tell. And I yes. was thinking, well, this is a great opportunity because for you to explain, like, what do you really mean yes. by um, using that don't ask, don't tell military policy as an analogy for the work you're doing and to understand who these codes, these queer codes, but also that audience that the artist really wants to speak to, but yes. can't really voice. Yeah. So that goes really to the core of my project, breaking the queer code, uh, the gay code in art, because what I want to do is I want to shatter this false belief that queer art and art from queer artists is just a footnote in mm -hmm. history. You know, um, in the school, I'm sure you know, Nobody teaches you that queer art has been with us from the beginning of times in all media, you know, from the Egyptian tombs to the Greek bases to the Renaissance sculptures to, to modern art. Not only that, that queer arts, artists have revolutionized mainstream culture throughout history. And to see an example of that, just look at the list of the most valuable or expensive uh, pieces of art in history, and you will see how many of them were created by queer artists. For instance, at the recent auction sale of the Marilyn Monroe by uh, Warhol for nearly $200 million. However, in spite of this impact, if you ask the general population to name any queer artist, like I have uh, for my documentary, I interviewed people outside of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and asked them, okay, can you name any gay artist? And 99% of the time, they had a blank 
expression. They can't name any. And that goes to this point you asked me, which is this idea of don't ask, don't tell, or what I call don't say gay, the erasure of queerness in art. Um, so last month I gave a conference, which you can see for free in the YouTube channel at the uh, University of San Francisco as part of the conference on social equity. And, and the title was Don't Say Gay, the Erasure of Queerness in Art. And what I did is talk about how historically uh, museums have erased the queerness in exhibitions. And by that, I mean the following. If you have an artist heterosexualized, like Picasso, so then you can talk as much as you want about his female lovers, his muses, etc. However, if you want to bring up for discussion or to talk about the sexuality of a queer artist, the response is, has been up to present times. Oh, no, 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 that's irrelevant. And um, the reason being in many cases, because the, the museum boards are very conservative and they are afraid to either create controversy or to lose funding. But the outcome of this is that the curators of the museums, of the exhibitions, they avoid any uh, same-sex relationships in their exhibitions. And in doing so, what they're doing is they closet queer figures that should be admired. Mm -hmm. And um, I have so many examples of this. And if you want, I can give you a couple so, so you can, I can tell you of how the museums have done that. Uh, are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is really good because it's this is the whole heart Point. of your mission. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And um, just to give you a couple of, I mean, I could be talking for an hour just about examples of how the museums have um, erased this. Let's say Jasper Jones. Jasper Jones, who just turned 92, is probably the most important American living artist. And he had a life-changing relationship with Robert Rosenberg for seven years, 1954 to 61 a relationship that transformed their lives and their work. Well, guess what? This relationship has not been discussed openly in the art world. It's always in sotto voce, you know, like in, in like, I not talk about it until recently this year um, at the retrospective of Jasper Jones. And I think it is because the uh, curator of this exhibition is queer. You know, but uh, in 2017, I went to New York to see the Robert Rosenberg retrospective at MoMA. And, you know, when he talked about Jasper Jones, he described their relationship as an intense friendship. Hmm. And uh, I kind of was appalled by that. And they, of course, they had a whole ex explanation on Rosenberg's uh, son because he had a child from a relationship with a woman, which was, I think it only lasted a few months. You know what I'm saying? But that they talk about, you know what I'm saying? And um, so this is an example. Or for instance, when MoMA also had their first uh, retrospective of Andy Warhol, they excluded all his early queer groundwork, uh, groundbreaking work as if they had been created by somebody else, hmm. you know? So, so, and I have examples of that and how the Whitney, for instance, when they did an exhibition called The American Century, that was a really a landmark exhibition, they ignored all queer artists. They only referred to them as part of the AIDS uh, uh, play, you know? So basically they either made invisible queer artists or they stigmatized them, mm -hmm. you know? So as a consequence of this erasure, to this day, many queer artists have avoided the queer label because they're afraid that it's gonna 
uh, displace any other factor of the work. You know, it's gonna affect how they are received the work by critics, uh, by the public, even the price of the work, you know? And consequently, there is a lack of visibility and, and lack of positive images in the, in, the, in the community. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you laid that out because it's also that fear that gay or bi or, you know, any queer actor um, has on a high profile stage to come out publicly because they're afraid they're not going to have job opportunities. I mean, yeah. I know there are, like, I'm sure you see too, there's artists now who wear their authenticity on their sleeve. And I think that that's the inspiring part, right? Yes. Like, I wanted to ask you, like, is your work um, playing into the need for that authenticity, the need for more, you know, queer images to be out there, the discussions to be open, right? The closets or, to be flung sure. off their hinges. Like, is that the... For sure. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of like the ultimate goal, which is also happening already. And uh, things are changing. Uh, museums are finally acknowledging the queer heritage in their collections. Uh, the Tate did uh, a seminal exhibition two years ago called Queer British Art. And that has happened, I saw one in Madrid at the Prado, in Taiwan, in Brazil. So that is happening more and more. And what is happening also is that I live in LA where there's a very thriving, a thriving uh, culture in galleries, in art galleries. And they are very embraced of queer artists. And what is happening is a little by little, these queer artists, they're getting name, they gain reputation, and now they are in museums, like the Whitney had a, an exhibition of Salvan Tour, a queer artist who, you know, a few years earlier was only in a gallery, but now he's at the Whitney, you know? So little by little, um, we also with the addition of queer curators, that is happening more and more, thank God. Yeah, but like the, you know, future docu-series, but even all the lectures that are out there, your articles, they're part of this grassroots, this need for just academics, um, art critics, anyone who is in media to really be speaking openly because it's this type of grassroots work where it comes from the ground up and then yes. eventually these, you know, big budget art institutions realize the need to, they have an audience that is going to want to see it and their board is going to invest in it. And, exactly. Um, but right, all of that doesn't happen if these conversations don't exist. And exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, that really goes to what I would uh, hope for the, my project, right? the gay calling art and the pursuers would be, which is the LGBTQ community needs now more than ever positive images, role models, because, you know, gay rights are once again under attack. And um, so it's very important for the new, the young queer generations, and frankly, for everyone to be aware that in spite of the repression, queer artists have revolutionized mainstream culture. And when I give my lectures and I see and I decode this work, and I see the young people's eyes widening up when I, they realize that, or they even gasp, you know? And I tell them, you come from a magnificent lineup of queer trailblazers, mm -hmm. you know, which you didn't know, you were not aware because nobody told you, they were hiding it. And this is very empowering. And uh, I, I love uh, something that uh, the gay activist, uh, Larry Kramer said, he said, 
you are not a community until you have a history. Hmm. So it's very important to bring this history forward, like I'm doing and hopefully with the documentary series, because that is gonna, is what, what is gonna bring representation, visibility, and social equity for the queer community. Exactly. Well, and also why now there are publication uh, publications who are investing in queer art history books. And especially like I always love when I see a new queer literature book come out. And um, but like you said, I was joking early in this interview about the shockingness of maybe queer visual explicit images, but we don't think about that when we see nudes of, you know, straight people, like exactly. straight couples, like it's never like, and it's in the art sphere and it's considered highbrow art. You know, I think when we realize, oh, queer art is also highbrow and they can be nude, there might not be nudity, but it's all part of our history. Like all of these images are part of an archive and right archives um, are so important because they give us an understanding of our culture. So, right, this is everything tying back to understanding oh, what you're doing oh. with queer culture. And, and you know, one thing that uh, people are maybe who are listening to this may not be aware is that this, you know, during, you mentioned the ancient Greece where same-sex desire was accepted, the male nude at the time represented the ultimate values of mankind. So that's why there were statues everywhere. But then when Christianity came in the fourth century, that was put the kibbutz on that and that disappeared. Um, and then from then on, there were laws, you know, uh, it started with the, with the Christianity that for male homosexual acts were, you know, penalized with the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So imagine the impact that this had on art. So from then on, the queer artists had to choose between being in the closet or being out with their art and their lives and, and risk rejection and persecution because these laws have been, you know, uh, active until present time. I mean, um, the criminalization of uh, male homosexuality in the UK lasted until 1967. Yeah. And today there are over 70 countries that still criminalize homosexuality. So this is not a historical issue, I mean, it is, but um, it's, it's a modern day issue in many places. So we really have to be aware of that, that in many cases, many countries, artists have still forced to use these codes because they cannot express themselves openly. Exactly. And um, yeah, even in the States, we have so few states actually yeah. have secured LGBTQ rights, rights in law with equal rights. So exactly. yeah, no, I... You're right. It's the coding is still happening, definitely. Um, and at the same time, we also see the openness and like the those who are able to take a lot of risks because they have more yeah. of a cushion of security. So, yeah, I think understanding all of the spectrum is what your work does. We get to understand the visual of queer art in really nuanced ways so you know i want to thank you for that ignacio because welcome it's it's, it's, it's so really like I, it's, it's like i said it became my life mission and that's what i'm doing you know so to do all i want is for people to open people's eyes and uh, that that's what i want and to have people look at art in different ways and understand what's behind it i understand how queer artists 
in spite of the suppression, were able to break the code and uh, to to do it in like, for instance, with uh, the classical images that you mentioned, but even with religious images, you know, during Christianity that uh, was uh, nudity was sinful. Queer artists managed to create very sexually charged, provocative images of Cain and Abel, Saint Sebastian, uh, Adam from Adam and Eve, even Jesus. Oh yes, I, I mean, was going to say even the whole, even the I have savior. a whole presentation on that, yeah. a lecture that you can see. So, and why is that? They were accepted because of the sacred subject matter, but they are so homoerotic that is a, is it's actually funny from today's uh, standards. Yeah, no, and like. It- ties back to the yeah the context of what um privileged or i'll say heteronormative right oh yeah straight identified culture like the norms of that culture for those who don't know what heteronormative means um that if they say okay well these half nude men who are in a locker room well that's for an espn reel like, no, that's okay. But okay, if that same context is in a party scene on the beach, you know, of out and of like out identified gay men on Fire Island. No, no, that's, that's too much, right? Yeah. Uh, who's getting yeah. to, you know, who's uh, making these rules. And I think what your work is doing is contesting that. It's also just, again, going back to the metaphor of the closet is so important for breaking down this queer coding in art. So I want, um, you know, as we wrap up, Ignacio, to just, you know, any last thoughts before I have you throw out all of your uh, ways for everyone to follow you? No, I mean, it's just thank you for giving me the uh, the opportunity to, to, to talk about this. You know, um, in essence, uh, Breaking the Gay Code in Art, which is the title for the Instagram page and the YouTube channel and the documentary series, is just to showcase the huge importance of queer artists throughout history. They were not a footnote. They were there uh, from the very beginning of time until today. And uh, I want to give them the opportunity in modern times to express their lives fully to do things that they were not able to do uh, in their time or to contextualize. And to me, I feel very, it gives me chills to, 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 to be able to explain what this queer artist was intending to do, which maybe at the time was not possible. But today we can finally embrace it and say it out loud. Yes, say it out loud. Let them live outside the closet. Yeah. Give them their full agency and exactly. their queer humanity, which they well deserve. Exactly. And they need that respect, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Well, where can everyone follow you, Ignacio, your Instagram handles and your YouTube channel? So the YouTube channel is called Breaking the Gay Code in Art. And the Instagram uh, page is Breaking the Gay Code in Art. As simple as that. And if you go to the YouTube channel, you'll see the, uh, all the lectures. And in the Instagram page, you'll see all the images that I've been talking about. And if you go to the Gay Lesbian Review magazine, which I find is an essential publication for queer culture. Yes. That's why I'm so excited. Uh, this is one of the- Yeah, we're holding up two different yes, Im- two This different is issues. one of the four feature stories I have written so far. This is actually the cover story was on the secret uh, muse, uh, African-American uh, model 
for the uh, artist John Singer Sargent. Um, so it's it, you can see these articles in the uh, GLS Review website yeah. too. Yep. So this is all part of that process of that project. Yeah, and also you can follow the Gay and Lesbian Review on Instagram exactly. at the GL Review. Um, I'm going to have more of these um, Gay and Lesbian Review interviews to come. I can't wait to see. You know, Ignacio, you are the first of many. So thank, thank you for you. being I love the being inaugural interview, interview uh, A. Um, so yeah, this was so wonderful. I can't wait for everyone to follow you and... Like I said, Ignacio, this is going to be the beginning of a Thank very you. exciting project. So definitely come back on. Cannot wait to see what happens. Thank you. Um, and hopefully soon, you know, no pressure, but I'll have you on eventually when, you know, a docu-series is. Yeah, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Thank you. Okay, Thank, well, you Andrew. Thank you. Thank to you all out there. And again, make sure you um, go to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Instagram to see all of the images, Ignacio. Well, that and also our lovely faces from the interview. But you could see all of the paintings too. Okay. Thank you, Ignacio. Thank you. And bye to bye. everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to the fall season. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is a public humanities podcast where we interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists. Episodes air on Mondays. I am Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I'm so happy to welcome my team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Kimberly Dallas, our editor, and an amazing fall group of interns. Thank you to this team. Please follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Easy to remember. Our Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a whole new design for our Patreon. It is called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe because you're joining us and eavesdropping on our conversations that are unedited videos of all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes as if you're eavesdropping in a cafe overhearing the conversation. Well, talking about overhearing a conversation, hi, Mary. Hello, Andrew, and hello, everyone. I'm Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, a podcast, well, a true crime podcast that is focused mainly on the crimes committed by and to those in the field of academia. Episodes air every Tuesday at noon. You can follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC in Academia because Twitter hates extra characters, as we all know. And as Andrew alluded to earlier, we have a Patreon and True Crime and Academia has exclusive bonus episodes for subscribers. As a true crime enthusiast, I don't necessarily like to pigeonhole my true crime interests. So over on the Patreon, I cover some of the more high profile cases not related to academia, such as the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey and the case of Casey Anthony. 
So if you want access to videos like that, go over to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber. Thank you all for joining us. And here's to an amazing fall season. Bye. Bye everyone.